0: Section 19 of Astounding Stories of Super Science, September 1930. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Kilmer. The Attack from Space, a sequel to Beyond the Heaviside Layer, Part 1, by Captain S. Meek. No one knows what the unrevealed horrors of space holds, and the world will never rest entirely easy until the slow process of time again heals the protective layer from beyond the heavy side layer. Over a year has passed since I wrote those lines. When they were written, the hole which Jim Carpenter had burned with his battery of infrared lamps through the heavy side layer that hollow sphere of invisible semi-plastic organic matter which encloses the world as a nutshell does a kernel was gradually filling in as he had predicted it would everyone thought that in another ten years the world would be safely enclosed again in its protective layer as it had been since the dawn of time there were some adventurous spirits who deplored this fact as it would effectually bar interplanetary travel for Headley had proved with his life that no space-flyer could force its way through the fifty miles of almost solid material which barred the road to space. But they were in the minority. Most of humanity felt that it would rather be protected against the Denzians of space than to have a road open for them to travel to the moon if they felt inclined. To be sure, during the five years that the hole had been open, nothing more dangerous to the peace and well-being of the world had appeared from space then a few hundred of those purple amoeba which we had found so numerous on the outer side of the lair when we had travelled in a Hadley spaceship up through the hole into the outer realms of space, and one lone specimen of the green dragons which we had also encountered. The amoeba had been readily destroyed by the disintegrating rays of the guarding spaceships which were stationed inside the lair at the edge of the hole, and the lone dragon had fallen a ready victim to the machine-gun bullets which had been poured into it at first the press had damned jim carpenter for opening the road for these horrors but once their harmlessness had been clearly established the row had died down and the appearance of an amoeba did not merit over a squib on the inside pages of the daily paper while the hole in the heavy side layer was no longer news for the daily press a bitter controversy still waged in the scientific journals As to the reason why no observer on Earth, even when using the most powerful telescopes, could see the amoeba before they entered the hole, and then only when their telescopes were set up directly under the hole. When a telescope of even small power was mounted in the grounds back of Carpenter's laboratory, the amoeba could be detected as soon as they entered the hole, or when they passed above it through space, but aside from that point of vantage, they were entirely invisible. Carpenter's theory of the absorptive power of the material of which the heaviside layer was composed was laughed to scorn by most scientists, who pointed out the fact that the sun, moon, and stars could be readily seen through it. Carpenter replied that the rays of colored or visible light can only pass through the layer when superimposed upon a carrier wave of ultraviolet or invisible light. He stated dogmatically that the amoeba and the other densians of space absorbed all the ultraviolet light which fell on them, and reflected only the visible rays, which could not pass through the heavy side layer because of the lack of a synchronized carrier wave of shorter wavelength. Despetier replied at great length, and showed by apparently unimpeachable mathematics that Carpenter was entirely wrong, and that his statements showed an absolute lack of knowledge of the most elementary and fundamental laws of light transmission, Carpenter replied briefly that he could prove by mathematics that two was equal to one. And he challenged Epitier or anyone else to satisfactorily explain the observed facts in any other way. While they vainly tried to do so, Carpenter lapsed into silence in his Los Angeles laboratory and delved even deeper into the problems of science. Such was the situation when the attack came from space. My first knowledge of the attack came when McCrary, the City Editor of the San Francisco Clarion, sent for me. When I entered his office, he tossed a Los Angeles Dispatch on the desk before me, and with a growl ordered me to read it. It told of an unexplained disappearance of an eleven-year-old boy the night before. It looked like a common kidnapping. Well, I asked, as I handed him back the Dispatch. With another growl, he tossed down a second telegram. I read it with astonishment for it told of a second disappearance, which had happened about an hour after the first. The similarity of the two cases was at once apparent. Coincidence or connection, I asked, as I returned it. Find out, he replied. If I knew which it was, I wouldn't be wasting the paper's money by sending you to Los Angeles. I don't doubt that I am wasting it anyway, but as long as I am forced to keep you on as a reporter, I might as well try to make you earn the money the owner wastes on paying your salary even although I know it to be a hopeless task. Go on down there and see what you can find out, if anything. I jotted down in my notebook the names and addresses of the missing children and turned to leave. A boy entered and handed McCreary a yellow slip. He glanced at it and called me back. Wait a minute, Bond, he said as he handed me the dispatch. I doubt you had better fly down to Los Angeles. Another case has just been reported. I hastily copied down the dispatch he handed me, which was almost a duplicate of the first two, with the exception of the time and the name. Three unexplained disappearances in one day was enough to warrant speed. I drew some expense money and was on my way south in a chartered plane within an hour. On my arrival, I went to the Associated Press Office and found a message waiting for me, directing me to call McQuarrie on the telephone at once. "'Hello, Bond,' came his voice over the wire. "'Have you just arrived?' "'Well, forget all about that disappearance case.' Prince is on his way to Los Angeles to cover it. You hadn't been gone an hour before a wire came in from Jim Carpenter. He says, Send Bond to me at once by fastest conveyance. Chance for a scoop on the biggest story of this century. I don't know what it's about, but Jim Carpenter is always front-page news. Get in touch with him at once, and stay with him until you have the story. Don't risk trying to telegraph it when you get it. Telephone. Get moving. I lost no time in getting Carpenter on the wire. "'Hello, First Mortgage,' he greeted me. "'You made good time getting down here. "'Where are you?' "'At the AP office. "'Grab a taxi and come out to the laboratory. "'Bring your grip with you. "'You may have to stay overnight.' "'I'll be right out, Jim. "'What's the story?' His voice suddenly grew grave. "'It's the biggest thing you ever handled,' he replied. "'The fate of the whole world may hang on it. "'I don't want to talk over the phone. "'Come on out, and I'll give you the whole thing.' an hour later i shook hands with tim the guard at the gate of the carpenter laboratory and passed through the grounds to enter jim's private office he greeted me warmly and for a few minutes we chatted of old times when i worked with him as an assistant in his atomic disintegration laboratory and of the stirring events we had passed through together when we had ventured outside the heaviside layer in his spaceship those were stirring times he said but i have an idea first mortgage that they were merely a Sunday-school picnic compared to what we were about to tackle. I guessed that you had something pretty big up your sleeve from your message, I replied. What's up now? Are we going to make a trip to the moon and interview the inhabitants? We may interview them without going that far, he said. Have you seen a morning paper? No. Look at this. He handed me a copy of the Gazette. Streamer headlines told of the three disappearances which I had come to Los Angeles to cover but they had grown to five during the time I had been flying down. I looked at Jim in surprise. ''We got word of that in San Francisco,'' I told him. ''And I came down here to cover the story. When I got here, McQuarrie telephoned me your message and told me to come and see you instead. Has your message anything to do with this?'' ''It has everything to do with it, First Mortgage. In fact, it is it. Have you any preconceived ideas of the disappearance epidemic?'' ''None at all.'' ''All the better.'' you'll be able to approach the matter with an unbiased viewpoint. Don't read that hooey put out by an inspired reporter who blames the lackness of the city government. I'll give you the facts without embellishment. Nothing beyond the bare facts of the disappearances known about the first case. Robert Prosser, aged 11, was sent to the grocery store by his mother about 6.30 last night, and failed to return. That's all we know about it, except that it happened in Eagle Rock." The second case we have a little bit more data on. William Hill, aged 12, was playing in Glendale last night with some companions. They were playing hide-and-go-seek, and William hid. He could not be found by the boy who was searching, and has not been found since. His companions became frightened, and reported it about 8 o'clock. They saw nothing but mark this. Four of them agree that they heard a sound in the air, like a motor humming. That proves nothing. Taken alone, it does not. But in view of the third case, it's quite significant. The third case happened about 9.30 last night. This time the victim was a girl, aged 10. She was returning home from a moving picture with some companions, and she disappeared. This time the other children saw her go. They say she was suddenly taken straight up into the air, and then disappeared from sight. They also claimed to have heard a sound like a big electric fan in the air at the time, although they could see nothing. Had they heard the details of the second disappearance? They had not. I can see what you are thinking. That they were unconsciously influenced by the account given of the other case, consciously or unconsciously. I doubt it, for the fourth case was almost a duplicate of the third. The fourth and fifth cases happened this morning. In the fourth case, the child, for it was a nine-year-old girl this time, was lifted into the air in broad daylight and disappeared. This disappearance was witnessed not only by children, but also by two adults, and their testimony agrees completely with that of the children. The fifth case is similar to the first. A ten-year-old boy disappeared without trace. The whole city is in a reign of terror. The telephone at Carpenter's elbow rang, and he answered it. A short conversation took place and he turned to me with a grim face as he hung up the receiver. "'Another case has just been reported to police headquarters from Beverly Hills,' he said. Again the child was seen to be lifted into the air by some invisible means and disappeared. The sound of a motor was plainly heard by five witnesses, who all agreed that it was just above their heads but that nothing could be seen. Was it in broad daylight? Less than an hour ago. But Jim, that's impossible. Why is it impossible? It would imply the invisibility of a tangible substance, of a solid. What of it? Why, there isn't any such substance. Nothing of that sort exists. Carpenter pointed to one of the windows of his laboratory. Does that window frame contain glass or not? he asked. I strained my eyes. Certainly nothing was visible. Yes, I said at a venture. He rose and thrust his hand through the space where the glass should have been. Has this frame glass in it? he asked, pointing to another. No. He struck the glass with his knuckle. I give up, I replied. I'm used to thinking of glass as being transparent, but not invisible. Yet I can see under certain light conditions it may be invisible. Granted that such is the case, do you believe that living organisms can be invisible? Under the right conditions, yes. Has any observer been able to see any of the purple amoeba which we know are so numerous on the outer side of the heavy side layer? not until they have entered the hole through the layer. And yet these amoeba are both solid and opaque, as you know. Why is it not possible that men, or intelligence of some sort, are in the air about us, and yet are invisible to our eyes? If they are, why haven't we received evidence of it years ago? Because there has only been a hole through the heaviside layer for six years. Before that time, they could not penetrate it any more than poor Hadley could with his spaceship. They have not entered the hole earlier, because it is a very small one, at present only some two hundred and fifty yards in diameter, in a sphere over eight thousand miles diameter. The invaders have just found the entrance. The invaders? Do you think that the world has been invaded? I do. How else can you explain the very fact which you have just quoted, that no evidence of the presence of these invisible entities has previously been recorded? Where did they come from? They may have come from anywhere in the solar system, or even from outside it, but I fancy that they are from Mars or Venus. Why so? Because they are the two planets nearest to the Earth, and are the ones where conditions are the most like they are on the Earth. Venus, for example, has an atmosphere and a gravity about .83 of earthly gravity, and life of a sort similar to that of the Earth might well live there. Further. It seems more probable that the invaders have come from one of the nearby planets than from the realms of space beyond the solar system. What about the moon? We can dismiss that because of the lack of an atmosphere. It sounds logical, Jim, but the idea of living organisms of sufficient size to lift a child into the air, who are invisible, seems a little absurd. I never said they were invisible. I don't think they are, but they must be, else why weren't they seen? Use your head first, Mortgage. Those purple amoeba we encountered were quite visible to us, yet they are invisible to observers on the Earth. Yes, but that is because the heavy side layer is between them and the Earth. As soon as they come below it, they can be seen. Exactly. Why is it not possible that the Venetians or Martians, or whoever our invaders are, have encased themselves and their space flyer in a layer of some substance similar to the heaviside layer, a substance which is permeable to light rays only when a large portion of the ultraviolet rays accompany the visible rays. If they did this, and then constructed the walls of their ship of some substance which absorbed all the ultraviolet rays which fell on it, not only would the ship itself be invisible, but also everything contained in it, and yet they could see the outside world easily, that such is the case is proved by the disappearance of those children in mid-air. They were taken into a spaceship behind the ultraviolet-absorbing wall and so became invisible. If the walls absorbed all the ultraviolet and were impermeable to light without ultraviolet, the ship would appear as a black, opaque substance and could be seen. That would be true, except for one thing which you are forgetting. The heavy side layer, as I have repeatedly proved, is a splendid conductor of ultraviolet. The rays falling on it are probably bent along the line of the covering layer so that they open up and bend around the ship in the same manner as flowing water will open up and flow around a stone and then come together again. The light must flow around the solid ship and then join again in such a manner that the eye can detect no interruption. Jim, all that sounds reasonable, but have you any proof of it? No first mortgage I haven't, yet, but if the Lord is good to us, we'll have definite proof this afternoon, and be in a position to successfully combat this new menace to the world. Do you expect me to go on another one of your cracked-brained expeditions into the unknown with you? Certainly I do, but this time we won't go out of the known. I have our old space flyer, which we took beyond the heavy side layers six years ago, ready for action, and we're going to look for the invaders this afternoon." How will we see them, if they are invisible? They are invisible to ordinary light, but not to ultraviolet light. While most of the ultraviolet is deflected and flows around the ship or else is absorbed, I have an idea that if we bathe it in a sufficient concentration of ultraviolet, some would be reflected. We are going to look for the reflected portion. Ultraviolet light is invisible? It is to the eye, but it can be detected. You know that radium is activated and glows under ultraviolet. Yes. Mounted on our flyer are six ultraviolet searchlights. By the side of each one is a wide-angle telescopic concentrator, which will focus any reflected ultraviolet onto a radium-coated screen and thus make it visible to us. In effect, the apparatus is a camera obscura with all lenses made of rock crystal or fused quartz, both of which allow free passage of ultraviolet. What will we do if we find them? Mounted beneath the telescope is a one-pounder gun with radiant shells. If we locate them, we will use our best effort to shoot them down. Suppose they are armed too. In that case, I hope that you shoot faster and straighter than they do. If you don't, well, old man, it'll just be too damn bad. I don't know that the Clarion hires me to go out and shoot at invisible invaders from another planet. But if I don't go with you, I expect you'll just call up the Echo or the Gazette and ask them for a gunner. Just about. In that case, I may as well be sacrificed as anyone else. When do we start? You old faker, cried Jim, pounding me on the back. You wouldn't miss the trip for anything. If you're ready, we'll start right now. Everything is ready. Including the sacrifice, I replied, rising. All right, Jim, let's go and get it over with if we live i'll have to get back in time to telephone the story to McCreary for the first edition i followed jim out of the laboratory and to a large open space behind the main building where the infrared generators with which he had pierced the hole through the heavy side layer had been located the reflectors were still in place but the bank of generators had been removed a gang of men were hard at work erecting a huge parabolic reflector in the center of the circle about the periphery of which the infrared reflectors were placed in an open space near the center stood a hadley spaceship toward which jim led the way i wondered at the activity and meant to ask what it pretended but in the excitement of boarding the flyer forgot it i followed jim in he closed the door and started the air conditioner here first mortgage he said as he turned from the control board and faced me here are the fluoroscopic screens They are arranged in a bank so that you can keep an eye on all of them readily. Beneath each telescope is an automatic one-pounder gun with its mount geared to the telescope and the light so that the gun bears continually on the point in space represented by the center of the fluoroscopic screen which belongs to that light. If we locate anything, turn your beam until the object is in the exact center of the screen where these two crosshairs are. When you have it lined up, push this button and the gun will fire. What about reloading? The guns are self-loading. Each one has 20 shells in its magazine, and will fire one shot each time the button is pushed until it is empty. If you empty one magazine, I can turn the ship so that another gun will bear. This gives you a total of 120 shots quickly available. There are 60 extra pounds which we can break out and load into the magazine in a few seconds. Do you understand everything? I guess so. Everything seems clear enough. All right, sit down, and we'll start. End of Section 19